Sophia had sent me a link to an NPR article that was basically like 50 pies for 50 states. And my immediate thought was that it was going to be like that time that the New York Times did like these are the Thanksgiving dishes that represent every state and like practically every state was deeply offended. Yeah, that always happens whenever they make those generalizations. (laughs) But this was... An Asian immigrant of some kind, I say this because it says born in Singapore, raised in Indonesia and Hong Kong, so I don't know how she prefers to be categorized. She pre-pandemic, I guess, was doing a thing where she baked a pie to represent every state, but not like simple pies, like it wasn't like California avocado pie. It's like an artichoke pie with an herbed crust and a red wine reduction on top. Oh, okay. I'm interested in this article. Yes, uh, there's also obviously her Instagram and then her website. Neither her Instagram nor her website are really organized in a way that's conducive to just skimming and reading the pies for every single state. But a lot of the pies look and sound amazing. That sounds really interesting. I'm very keen. So she's finished her pie-like journey. She hasn't. It looks based on the website like she paused in March. But it was really cute. She was like, oh, this one's dedicated to so-and-so. I gave these to my friends who are from these states. You know, it's nice. Oh, that's so lovely. But has anyone been deeply offended yet? I don't know. I didn't, like, cast a wide net for press reactions to this. It did say, I think, that two of the pies had been featured in New York Times Cooking. I wish that there was a really concise, comprehensive list where I could read the pie for every state, but because that wasn't available to me, I only like checked key states and like skimmed a little just to see, because the first several posts I saw were her being like, I have been to Utah, I have been to Colorado, but there were a few that like she hasn't been to Oregon, but she'd like to go because she dreams of seeing Crater Lake. I also dream of seeing Crater Lake for the record. Well, now the record shall reflect that. I just want you to know, like, I was assigned Crater Lake for a project in elementary school, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Great. I'm so happy for you. The waters look very blue. I'll be happier for you if you get to go. Yeah, well, we'll see at this point. But, (laughs) you know, it's been, like, over 20 years, so I'm concerned that the waters might not be as blue now. I mean... (laughs) That's a distinct possibility. You know you could check up on Crater Lake. Maybe just Google it. Nope, see nope. how it looks. I can only check encyclopedias and uh, Crater Lake in person so that it will reflect my mid-90s relationship with Crater Lake. Okay. Well, keep me posted. Anyway. Welcome to Romcomathon. I'm Alex. And I'm Kat. And this week we watched Happiest Season... Um, It's the lesbian holiday rom-com that just released on Hulu. Um, We're recording this right after Thanksgiving. And it was... See, here's the thing. (laughs) Alex watched it first, and we were very excited, as were many people we knew. And I texted, because I knew that they had watched it right away, like, oh, how was it? And I got back, it was dot, 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 okay. I, I need to preface this by saying, like, I didn't actually hate this movie. Like, I, I really didn't. I think overall, I on par, I would say probably I enjoyed it, probably. <laughs> um, but I have, but I have a lot, a lot of complaints. I think I swung wildly between loving it and hating it at any given moment. <laughs> I think that's 
fair, lesbian Twitter is like all a buzz with varied opinions. There were some high highs and some low lows. And it was funny because then like the next day, maybe my friend Melissa was like, have you seen Happiest Season yet? It's our new favorite holiday movie. Yeah, some people seem to have really loved it. And most people seem to have had like kind of the mediocre reaction that I had slash some real, real criticisms. I think Matt saw an article this morning that was like, happiest season is almost the lesbian rom-com of our dreams. But before I do the plot summary, a key thing to know about us is we're constantly fantasizing about a queer rom-com that almost doesn't exist. Like there are a few, but there are very few. We really wish there were more happy lesbian rom-coms that are not about coming out or suicide or sleeping with your teacher. Well, those are not rom-coms, I guess. I mean, you can include But I'm a Cheerleader in that, which is, you know, I, I really want a movie where, you know, it doesn't take place at a conversion camp. I think I wrote later down in my notes, I feel like this movie was like The Family Stone meets Get Out meets But I'm a Cheerleader. <laughs> Minus yeah, a lot conversion of people, therapy. A lot of people have compared it to The Family Stone. Anyway, I will now summarize the plot. So Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis are a nice couple living together in Pittsburgh. They've been together a year, year and a half? So according to the opening credits, they got together on December 14th. I mean, they went on, they met on like December 14th. They went on their first date like shortly after that. And by New Year's, they were fully together. Okay. Oh, lesbians. Yes. <laughs> And then I would like to point out that the date on which they move in together is September 30th. Whew. Okay. So they've been together a year. They've been living together for like three months. It's going really well. Um, So well that K-Stu is thinking about proposing. Is No, no, no. Not even thinking about proposing. Is full on ready to get down on one knee and do the whole situation. She has bought the ring. She owns the ring. <laughs> Um, it's Christmas time. La la la. Mackenzie Davis loves Christmas, but she totally understands that Case Stu doesn't love Christmas because she is an orphan. Nonetheless, they're looking at Christmas lights and stuff, and Mackenzie Davis, as Matt put it, in a moment of being like pussy drunk, has a brilliant idea. Case Stu should come home with her for Christmas. She should meet her family. They should wake up together Christmas morning. It'll be so nice. You know, that does sound nice. The only problem is that Case Stu has agreed to take care of a lot of people's pets, but it's fine. Her friend Dan Levy will do it for her. So Case Stu, after a little bit of persuading, agrees to come to wherever it is Mackenzie Davis's family lives. Let's call it small town Pennsylvania. Midway through this movie, I was like, what? state are we in? Because I think I had missed they were in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tori was like, I the, the license plates all say Pennsylvania, so I assume they're still in Pennsylvania. Oh, she's smart. I was too distracted by the situation. So, Case Stu has really turned around on Christmas and she's all excited and she goes with Dan Levy to pick up the ring that you have wonderfully mentioned and she's planning to ask Mackenzie Davis's dad for his blessing and propose on Christmas morning like a psychopath. But then... A small snag. In the car, on the way to small town PA, Mackenzie Davis is like, hey, so you know how I supposedly came out to my parents this summer and told them all about our relationship? Yeah, I didn't do that. 
could you possibly just pretend to be my straight roommate for the next five days? My parents will not think it's weird because I told them you're an orphan. That's cool, right? That is almost word for word what happens (laughs) in the car. In the car, on the way there, they have turned off the fucking highway. Um, Keisu, understandably, is like, um, no, I can't do that. Not least because no one has ever looked more like a lesbian than me. But ultimately agrees because basically there's like this whole thing with Mackenzie Davis's dad, Victor Garber, running for mayor of small town PA and her mom, Mary Steenburgen, being really stressed about it. And everyone's really obsessed with image at this time. We later find out it's all the time, but particularly at this time. And Mackenzie Davis promises Case that she'll tell them after the holidays. And also they're basically already there. Um... Cue all of the shenanigans you would expect with the uncomfortable additional layer of Keisu, who looks great, by the way, having to pretend to be straight. She meets the parents. She meets Mackenzie Davis's weird sister, Jane, played by Mary Holland, that no one cares about. And Allison Brie, Mackenzie Davis's oldest sister, with whom she turns out to be psychotically competitive. And Allison Brie's husband and their dead-eyed sociopathic kids. Also... Apparently, this town is so small that everyone Mackenzie Davis has ever dated is also hanging around. Most notably, Evan from Greek, whom her parents are obsessed with and clearly yes. wanted to get back together with. I kept, I know his name was Cotter in the film, but I kept calling him Evan Chambers. It's fine. So Evan from Greek and Dr. Aubrey Plaza looking so hot. So hot. We'll have to come back to how hot Aubrey Plaza looks in this movie because she's, you know, a nice looking girl, but... Never before was I like, oh my god, Aubrey Plaza. Yes, exactly. Um, Mackenzie Davis, as it turns out, has lied about a whole bunch of stuff and excluded key parts of her personal romantic history, most notably that what actually happened with Aubrey Plaza, her quote, first girlfriend, is they were best friends who fell in love as teens, but it was a secret, and then somebody found one of Aubrey Plaza's notes to Mackenzie Davis, and Mackenzie Davis basically was like, oh, I'm not gay, but Aubrey Plaza is, and she's stalking me, and left Aubrey Plaza to be socially crucified. So that happened. A very sympathetic moment for Mackenzie Davis, clearly. Anyway... Obviously, then Case Do, already on edge from like sleeping in separate rooms and the entire town knowing she's an orphan, is like, wow, this really adds an additional layer to the horrible Christmas ruse I'm being asked to keep up. And also, the whole reason she's hanging out with Aubrey Plaza and hearing the story is because she got like framed for shoplifting by the Hannibal Lecter twins. And now she's excluded from all the family campaign events while Mackenzie Davis goes to them without her and hangs out with Evan from Greek. Blah, blah, blah. Things come to a head. Lots of unnecessary block comedy. Case 2 is like, I have to leave. Dan Levy comes to rescue her. Allison Brie finds out about Case 2 and Mackenzie Davis and tries to out them to the parents so that then she can be the favorite daughter. Mackenzie Davis lies again to her parents when this happens. Um, Case 2 is like, I'm so done with this situation. But then, I don't know, they go for a while. Somehow she still hasn't actually left yet like she tries to leave like four times without actually doing it 
And Mackenzie Davis realizes she's going to lose Case Stu and also that her choices are terrible. So she tells her parents the truth finally. And Alison Brie also tells the truth about her life, which is that she's getting divorced, but this family is like so screwed up that no one can tell their parents anything. So they were just planning to hide it until, I guess, also after Christmas or after the campaign. Who knows? Forever. And then Mary Steenburgen and Victor Garber are like, wow, how did this happen to us? Whatever. Basically, then there's an epilogue where everyone is happy and a attending pride parades, including the beautiful and perfect Dr. Aubrey Plaza and what I can only assume is her new girlfriend, Claire Duvall. The end. Yep, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this summary is like a page long and usually they're like a paragraph and I was just like, I can't believe I have so much to say. (laughs) I'd like to start off with like how weirdly structured and what like writing choices Claire Duvall and Mary Holland, who played Jane, they co-wrote the film, um, I was very confused about midway through the film. So Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza spent a lot of screen time together, like a significant amount of screen time, possibly more significant screen time than she actually spends with her own girlfriend. Yes, that's because Mackenzie Davis is too busy hanging out with Evan from Greek. Yeah, and so like midway through the film, Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza are in this drag bar having like, you know, chats and like talking about themselves and it's nice. And Alex and I at this point are like, are are they going to end up together? Because that would be great. That would be awesome. Because Aubrey Plaza and Kristen Stewart have great chemistry in this film. They are very shippable. So I, I was fully confused. Like, I was like, is this going to take a turn that I wasn't expecting? That would be very queer of this movie. Truly. Matt and I were watching and we legit were like, wow, this movie is really picking up two thirds of the way through. Maybe it was just like a really long, slow act one. And this is the inciting incident where she and Aubrey Plaza begin their beautiful love story. If only. If only. But my question is, why did they include all that stuff with Aubrey Plaza like, there were so many writing choices they could have made to make that relationship with Mackenzie Davis the focus, but they chose not to do it. It just feels like instead of that opening credits montage where it was all, like, illustrated, um, Kristen, da- uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis's relationship, like, they could have included some more slice-of-life stuff from their relationship that would have made us more sympathetic to Harper. And instead, they were, it was just like, oh, she just, she invited Kristen Stewart, but she's also closeted. And now Kristen Stewart has to be closeted. Like, at no point are we sympathetic towards her. Yeah, well, here's the thing. There's a whole thing with Dan Levy at the end. And even throughout, like, I'm actually very sympathetic to Harper feeling like she can't come out to her parents. Of course. Yes. In no way do I fault Mackenzie Davis's character for being scared or being closeted or being even not ready, right? Like, no, that's totally not the issue. What is not okay is trapping people into horrible situations they have not agreed to when you've basically arrived. Like, I totally get not coming out. I can even understand the initial lie. Like, I get that it is hard to say, like, I couldn't actually do it. Because you don't want to disappoint this person. Also, they haven't been together that long. How much trust could there be? But this is a conversation you have before getting in the car. Yes. So it would have been one thing if Mackenzie Davis had said, 
look, I didn't really come out to my parents. I want to invite you, but I totally understand if you don't want to come and pretend to be closeted for Christmas because my family is psychotic. And Kristen Stewart still made that decision to go with her. But instead, Mackenzie Davis is like, we're midway there. The only way for you to leave me now is for you to get a really expensive Uber back to Pittsburgh. And then her abysmal behavior stacks up throughout the rest of the film. Like, it's not about her being closeted. Like, I know she makes all of these bad decisions stemming from that, but she behaves abysmally. She treats her girlfriend terribly. Yes, you are not allowed to bring, and I know that like I was joking about how every other line is like, and Abby's an orphan, but truly, why would you bring someone who already struggles with this holiday into this awful situation (laughs) without their consent? Yeah, also, I hated the orphan runner. Like, I, it could have been funny, like they could have done something funny, but the gap- Could it have been funny? The gag wasn't funny. It just came off as like weird and insensitive. I was like, this family is toxic. It is wholly toxic. By the end of the movie, they have this happy Christmas montage. And I was like, what the fuck? No, these people have belittled you for the entire five days you've been here. They've they've over and over made these really weird comments about you not having parents growing up in an orphanage. Like what kind of psychotic people do this? Um, after she was caught like shoplifting, but like not shoplifting, they fully are like, well, if you took my Christmas brooch, I won't be angry. Just put it back. And it's like, okay, so now you think I'm a thief? Like there were so many behaviors that were so incredibly terrible that I would be deeply upset to have to spend every Christmas for the rest of my life with these people. Look, blah, blah, blah. It's a comedy, but it's very tough to tackle something so emotional and serious as coming out slash being an orphan. (laughs) There were literally a million other options for them to do as a rom-com, like so many other plot options. And I don't know why they chose this one. Like I read like Clea Duvall was like, oh, I wanted to do something that was like, you know, resonated with me and close to my heart. And I was like, but I don't need this closeted rom-com situation. It's not funny for me. Honestly, I think this speaks to some people. You and I are not those people. We're always like, can we just see a movie where two women are already out and have dealt with their issues and then they can be together and have normal rom-com problems? I think the key is that I don't find it funny that their core issue is that Mackenzie Davis is terrified that her family will no longer love or value her because of who she loves and values. I would like to watch a movie where her family already loves and values her, you know, and doesn't care that she is with whoever, and then we have other shenanigans instead. I made a list of things I wish had happened in this movie. The first one being sleep with Aubrey Plaza, sleep with Aubrey Plaza right now. Yeah. The second one being, I hoped against hope, knowing that it doesn't happen, that it would be a thing where her family was like, oh, honey, we've always known. It was super weird how you and Aubrey Plaza acted like we didn't know. And then the third thing was that at the end, we were like, maybe Victor Garber will also come out. Oh, yeah, we kept joking about that. 
Um, I really wanted at the end for them to break up. I I was like, this would be what would be emotionally healthy for like both of them. Like clearly Mackenzie Davis needs to go to therapy and work on her issues. How could she be past like all this trauma with her family? And I just felt like maybe she should be single. She doesn't have to be like, it's okay if you're with someone and they're going through this and you're prepared to support them. I just Kristen Stewart was really not given the choice and she was so unhappy and at the end she is kind of like I need to be with someone who's already dealt with all this and we were so proud of her yeah she literally says to Dan Levy like I want to be with someone who's ready and he says okay and then like a scene later they got back together yeah no I (laughs) and I was like no this rom-com has gone too far in the other direction and there's no salvaging my investment in this relationship Mackenzie Davis like makes this impassioned speech at a gas station where she's like I'm gonna spend the rest of my life making it up to you and I was like really like you have thoroughly demonstrated over the last like week that you are you're a terrible partner like like I have sympathy for her being closeted and being scared but She had so many opportunities, like specifically, I think the scene where she invites Kristen Stewart to come hang out with her and her high school friends at a straight bar. And this scene is weirdly juxtaposed with the wonderful time that Kristen Stewart, well, not wonderful time, but she's having a good time bonding with Aubrey Plaza in the drag bar, right? It's so nice. And then it's so lively. And then she immediately has to go to the straight bar where she has to pretend to be Mackenzie Davis's friend. They're doing shots. Her ex-boyfriend is there and her horrendous vapid straight friends from high school and then Casey was like you know what I think I'm just gonna go home I think I'm gonna go home and Mackenzie Davis is like okay well I'm gonna stay and then there's like a really sad scene and this scene really struck me where Kristen Stewart is like texting Mackenzie Davis and she's like okay I'm home all right I'm going to bed okay I hope you I hope you get home soon good night and it's really sad it made me really sad I don't know I think that scene is like that text felt very real but in a bad way get out get out get out yeah and then at the end of that bar night Mackenzie Davis is talking to her ex-boyfriend and they're saying goodnight and he says to her was there someone else like you know you always said we broke up because of the distance but was there something else and it was such an opening for her I know I was like girl this is the moment like he really cared about her and I really think that you know she could have said to him in that moment yeah like I'm actually you know I'm actually into women like she was given opportunities to come out and then chooses not to And, you know, again, that's up to her whether or not she feels safe in that situation. But it was tough to see Kaysu have to, like, live through that. Yeah, it was really difficult. Anyway, obviously this addresses all of our serious concerns. Can I bring up some less serious concerns? Do you want to talk about Mackenzie Davis's really bad wig? Oh my god, no. What? (laughs) No, did you you like, because I spent a lot of the movie staring at her hair and being like, what did they do to you? I was astonished that this film managed to make Mackenzie Davis' previous lesbian heartthrob into like the worst character (laughs) because she's so cute in San Junipero. And then she's so, she's very attractive and deeply gay in Terminator. Yet here, where she's actually playing a lesbian, it's just like, oh, uh, okay, these bangs are doing nothing for you. Oh, no. I didn't even have time for her styling on top of all of her other issues. 
I was thinking more like, well, actually, this is a serious concern. You should not propose to people whose families you have not met. Oh my god, so what a heterosexual proposal that Case Stu came up with. I'm going to propose on Christmas Day in front of her family. Nuh-uh. No, no, no. I don't think straight people should do that either. You and I are very anti-public proposal, though. Like, disclaimer, if you love a public proposal, live your truth. But yeah, you and I really... It's, no, I will say this. I am incredibly anti-public proposal if the proposal is a surprise. Yes, yes, yes. Well, also, should any proposal be a surprise? But go on. Exactly. So A, don't propose to your partner if you have not talked about it. And B, you should only propose publicly if you know that your partner is on board. Like if they've mentioned that this is something they like, if you've hypothetically talked about getting married, like, you know, like this is something you need to discuss ahead of time. If they're definitely going to say yes and they love that kind of thing. Otherwise, don't do it. YouTube is full of awkward Christmas Day proposals. Yes, if they are like, I would love to get proposed to in front of my whole fucking family, my aunt and uncles, and my grandparents on Christmas morning, then then go ahead, bud. Okay, non-serious concerns. Case 2 is a bad pet sitter. She really is. I hope that these are friends' pets and that she isn't being paid to do this because she fully offloads the entire job onto Dan Levy, who possibly kills these people's fish, who definitely kills these people's fish. But here's the thing. I'm gonna be honest, right? Like... He walked the dog. He feeds the cats. The fish are expendable. (laughs) They're just fish. I would love to have seen like a post credit scene where the people come home and they're like, huh, Buddy looks different. (laughs) They're just fish. They don't have very long lifespans. They all look alike. Like, whatever. I would like to ask a question. Is this life in small town America? Like, does the whole entire town do white elephant together? Because what a stressful life. I know. I was like, I hate this. Also, it seems like there wasn't a price limit on this white elephant party. And I hate that. I would like to list my favorite characters in order of amazingness. Uh, Number one, Dr. Aubrey Plaza. Mm -hmm. Number two, Dan Levy. Mm -hmm. Number three... Mary Holland slash Weird Jane, who is a decent painter, and I'm so glad that she achieves her dream and publishes her book, Care of Dan Levy, who suddenly at the end, I was like, oh yeah, publishing. Yes. I loved Jane. I felt terrible for Jane. She doesn't deserve this family. Uh, She's lovely, and I appreciate her painting very much, and I would have found it very difficult to forgive my sister for taking my painting I worked so hard on and smashing it over the head of my other sister. There's a scene, like, shortly after, like, this brawl at Christmas Eve, and they are just, like, hugging it out, things are fine, and I'm like, well, first of all, Alison Brie just outed you to your entire family, which is horrible, so that's unforgivable, and then Mackenzie Davis just destroying Mary Holland's painting, that's unforgivable. I mean, I think the painting thing is more forgivable than the outing thing, but but yes, indeed, we were like, wait, are we just gonna gloss over what Alison Brie just did? Yeah, which is, like, I was like, oh, no, this is, like, a legitimate, This, like, like, cardinal sin of knowing someone gay. (laughs) Yes, this is a malicious act. She did it to hurt her. And, like, sure, it ended up okay, but it's not okay. No. Uh, anyway. Fourth favorite character, maybe K-Stu, whose acting has some real ups and downs, but for the most part, I enjoyed her in this film. Yeah, I mean, she's not, like, a super 
I don't know. Like, she's just kind of reacting to the stuff that's happening around her. She's pretty passive. Yeah. Which is... Until she tries to leave, like, four times unsuccessfully. <laughs> I saw a tweet that was like, <laughs> like, nothing has been more accurate than this portrayal of a lesbian breakup. Abby tries to break up with Harper, like, four times, and Harper is just like, no, heart. Oh, oh I'm upset. I don't like it. Um, can we just... I know this isn't important, but Kay Stu doesn't look like an Abby and Mackenzie Davis doesn't look like a Harper. I mean, I had questions about the names in this family, Sloan, Harper, and then just Jane. Yes, it was as if they were like, I think we're not going to care about this one. Um, Speaking of what you were saying before, like early on about odd structuring i was gonna say that i also read that thing about the autobiographical nature of this or claire duvall just trying to work out her own whatever and i think that's why it's so because you know sometimes when people are trying to write about their own life like they don't have a good sense of Mm. what should be big and what should be small but what was really weird to me is that we are fully in Kesu's perspective for the vast majority of the movie and then very late in the game we start seeing scenes of Mackenzie Davis alone like she's just never a perspective character until like 20 minutes from the end you're right yeah that is odd and it's not like I also think she'd have been more sympathetic if we saw some scenes not from Kesu's perspective yeah for sure And I didn't necessarily need more of the earlier stuff, as you described, because the early stuff is nice. Like, I bought in. Um, And then after the turn, it was like, this is a different person. I feel exactly the way K-Stu does. Anyway, like, less weird in a movie than a book, but weird. I, yeah, that's true. I mean, like, they really marketed it and pushed this as a romantic comedy. And I would have really gone and said, like, if they had just leaned into the fact that maybe this was just a dramedy, then that would have been better. You know, like, I feel like that would have been, like, a clearer sort of, like, path to this film. Like, it it wasn't, a, I just, there was a lot less calm or and rom, frankly, than I was expecting. Here's the thing. There was calm, there was rom, and there was drama, but never all at once. It was, like, the first ten minutes of the movie were rom. And then there was, like, five minutes of calm. And then there was, like, an hour of drama. And then there was 20 minutes of calm in place of drum. <laughs> I just wanted like holiday candy colored garbage to drink in with my eyes. Like, why couldn't I have gotten this? We literally paused the movie in the middle because I was like, I thought I saw the trailer and I thought it was going to be like a normal rom-com or like a love actually, or even like a ghost Christmas, like who cares? But then I watched the trailer and was like, oh no, they do tell you in the trailer, this is what happens. So maybe you sent me the trailer and I didn't watch it, which is on me. Yeah, maybe. I knew that it was going to be about Mackenzie Davis being closeted, but I didn't know how bad it was going to be because the trailer does not show you how crazy the family is and how actually traumatic I found them. So basically, when they get there, Mackenzie Davis is astonished that her mother is like, oh, I'm putting K-Stu in a different bedroom, which I feel like Mackenzie Davis should have seen coming since they are like 30. Yeah, and they have the the space, so. Yeah. Anyway, like this is kind of a normal rom-com thing, which leads to K-Stu like trying to sneak to Mackenzie Davis and K-Stu ending up like 
literally in a closet. And I have to say, kudos to them for not making a literally in the closet joke, which I so thought was coming. Um, But that is the type of shenanigan that the half of the trailer I watched would have led me to believe was coming in this situation. That like the family was totally nice. It just Harper happened to have not come out yet. And thus there was like, yes. So from the trailer, I fully thought that she had not come out, but it was like because of her, like it was her issues. Her family would have been totally fine with it. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, her family is a little homophobic. Like, they make comments when they see Aubrey Plaza's family at dinner. They make comments about Aubrey Plaza's lifestyle. And at first, I was like, maybe they're talking about something else. Truly, I was like, oh, they're talking about her habit of adopting seven dogs. But no, they are talking about her being gay. And... If that's the situation, like, yeah, I wouldn't want to come out either. Like, why did you make this family so terrible? And I realize that this is very true to life in many people's situations. And I think that's part of why it resonates with a lot of people. But this is a rom-com podcast and I'm sad. Yeah, that's the other thing is that like, yes, this is fine if I knew what I was getting into. But I thought I was here for shenanigans and kissing. Yes. Like, I wasn't like, oh, let's watch Carol, a wonderful film, for the December episode of this podcast. Yeah, like, we were like, oh, I just wanted to watch some trash. I want, like, the set it up of, like, lesbians. Where is this movie? Someone write this movie. We have been asking for it for many years. We just want to watch it. I just want to watch Shenanigans. Yes, I want to watch two beautiful women of approximately the same age. Yeah, that's key. Fall in love. Preferably one blonde and one brunette, which does happen in this one. So at least there's that. (laughs) Those are the people that I would like to see already out to their families, falling in love. You know, maybe someone gets a job somewhere. Maybe someone's having a thing with an ex. Normal problems. Yeah. Oh, I also would have liked to see one of them be a woman of color, but... um, Oh, please, don't be ridiculous. As far as this movie goes, I was like, thank God K-Stu wasn't a woman of color because she gets, like, interrogated by mall cops. Another scene that I found very stressful and not at all funny. This really would be Get Out. Yeah, and, like, patronized by her partner's horrendous family. Like, no, no, people of color don't deserve this. Nor did K-Stu. Um, we have not spent enough time talking about how hot and fine Aubrey Plaza is in this movie. I, I don't, I don't, what can I say? I don't have words to describe how great she looked. She, so I have never, like, I've never really thought of Aubrey Plaza as, like, super hot. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, she's, like, pretty, I guess, like, a normal, attractive woman. Yeah, Matt was like, oh, I'm always attracted to Aubrey Plaza. And I was like, I'm not. I mean, you know, like, I think she's a perfectly lovely whatever and very funny. But, uh, yeah, no, definitely. Alex pointed out that we actually, like, saw her in person at, like, an Arclight screening at some point. And I was like, oh, I, like, barely remember this. You know, like, I just, like, like, Aubrey Plaza doesn't make a huge impression on me. When she, like, showed up in the film, I was like, oh, my God, what happened? (laughs) My mind was blown. Yeah, pretty much. She looked so good. She was the best thing about this movie. My best scenes and lines are, like, case you hang out with Aubrey Plaza, case you hang out with Aubrey Plaza again, when Aubrey Plaza comes over in that party, and she's like, what's this beverage? And it's something horrible. And Aubrey Plaza goes, gross can I have some and it was both so Aubrey Plaza and also so attractive I don't know what to do I don't know what to do 
Her sartorial choices were amazing, although Kestu also looked great at that party. But Kestu is also wearing the gayest outfit known to man, so I just, I don't know what ruse she was trying to keep up. Yes, my second favorite scene slash line situation was Kristen Stewart pretending to be heterosexual at any moment, especially at the beginning when her situation was still funny and not horrible. Yeah. And also when she's on the phone with Dan Levy and he goes, have they ever met a lesbian? Yep, accurate. And totally called that he would then have to also pretend to be straight. Yes, I, I I would say my favorite scenes probably line up, but I will make the addendum that it's not like Mackenzie and Davis and, and Kristen Stewart don't have some cute moments. They do have some endearing moments. Yes, they're all in the first 10 minutes of the movie. I also did like the scene where Mackenzie Davis like sneaks down to, to basically have sex and it's cute. Like they're, they have like cute, sweet moments. They were just very far and few between. <laughs> Yes, I lost patience with Mackenzie Davis very early in the film and kept waiting for her to be redeemed and it just didn't happen. No, it like never happens. Yeah. Um, what else? My other two bests were Jane going, I don't have any secrets, but I am an ally. I did love that. I also love the line where um, at the beginning, when they first get to the house, where Mary Steenburgen, like is like showing her like the piano and is like, oh, it's a shame that like none of my daughters have relearned. And then you hear Jane go, I took lessons for eight years. <laughs> oh, poor Jane. Um, oh, my favorite prop was the reindeer walker at the ice rink. Yes, I did love that special shout out. That was very cute. I was like, where can I get one of these? Indeed. At Pickwick, I think they have like seals, but the reindeer was better. Um, worst. I wrote bad pivotal scene. Like, obviously, I feel this parent stuff, but cringe. Yep. I, um, I mean, like many worse, the shoplifting scene, again, even though the mall cops were supposed to be like, la la funny, I found it deeply stressful, like knowing how, like just, just knowing that it wasn't going to work out well for K-Stew in regards to the family. Just hated it. Hated that whole situation. Um, yeah. Hated the little sociopathic kids. Oh yeah. The like the black children of the corn. Yeah. And like at the end, it was like, we're sorry. And she was like, it's okay, kids. It's not okay. Yeah. You should be punished. Um, yeah. So hated that. Hated the, the straight bar thing. Um, hated the fighting at the Christmas party. Um, people of color? Well, um, there is Alison Bree's husband and the kids. Yep. The lady. Who is that lady? I don't know. She's like some sort of like, I don't know, city hall person, counselor. I don't know who she is, but basically. Whatever. Yeah. Her, her assistant, and one of Mackenzie Davis's straight high school friends. Yeah. The movie is very white, which has been something, you know, it's been talked about for months, basically. Like ever since the trailer was released, like everyone was like, oh, this movie is super, super white. And it's, it's pretty. It's a bummer. Like, they could have made either Aubrey Plaza or Dan Levy, like, people of color. They could have just introduced, like, more melanin into this film. In the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah, but the thing is, is that, you know, it's been pointed out that Clea Duvall's other film, like, earlier film, is also extremely white. So maybe Clea Duvall just has a really, really white look at her life. And did she grow up in Pennsylvania? I don't know, but it is 2020. Like, you need to get some people of color, some diversity into your films. Yes, we make fun all the time of, like, the friend of color, but, like, where was her friend of color? Yeah, like, not even her friends were people of color. It's just like, okay. 
Anyway, score. I wrote, if it's the Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis movie, like four. If it's the Aubrey Plaza movie, like nine. I think overall, I would probably give it like a six. Like, again, I didn't hate this. Like, I know we spent this entire like episode like ragging on this movie, but like, I didn't hate it. I may have hated it. I don't know. I was just really, really stressed for the middle like hour of this film, except when she was hanging out with Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I was very stressed. (laughs) And it's like, this movie's called Happiest Season. We haven't dwelled on that enough. That, I think, is the thought that we should leave people with. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um... We'll be back to you in 2021. Uh, Hopefully it'll be a better year than 2020. But please follow us on our social media uh, listed in the credits. And we hope you have a great holiday season if you celebrate and a happy new year. Bye. Thank you to Hannah Oatman, who composed our theme music, and Alexandra Oatman, who painted our logo art. You can follow Alexandra on Twitter at at Alexandra. Special thanks to Quincy Surasmith for advising us on the art of the podcast. Subscribe to his wonderful podcast, Asian Americana, at wherever you get your podcasts. Want more Romcomathon? You can read past reviews at romcomathon2016.tumblr.com and follow us at romcomathon2016 on Facebook and Twitter and romcomathon on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. Please subscribe and rate Romcomathon on iTunes. Thank you.